I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB podcast. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones and today I'm talking to John Lanchester, who's written a piece in the current issue of the LRB about Georges Simenon and his 75 Maigret novels which Penguin have just finished reissuing in new translations. Hello, John. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. And I thought we could begin where you begin your piece, with Simonon's colossal output, as you put it, and that nobody knows how many books he actually wrote, though it was probably more than 400, which is fewer than Barbara Cartland, but still puts the rest of us to shame. No, he, did, he, did, he didn't half crack on, that's true. Um, yes, he started as a young man in Liège, his hometown in Belgium, and he got a job as a reporter on a local paper. Age, I, think, I think he was not quite 16, which is properly strange. It's like something out of a high-concept kids' TV show, you know, Georges Simenon, boy reporter. And very early on, latched onto the idea of making money through writing. And so he started doing it... His first book he began writing when he was 18, came out when he was 19. He started writing every sort of potboiler, thrillers, uh, romances, sort of semi-porn, westerns, things like that, at an absolutely astounding rate of productivity. And he would write, his daily target was 80 pages a day, uh, typewritten. And even on the assumption that a page is sort of, I mean, a short page would be, 150 words and it could well have been more we don't think we know but there's 10,000 words a day and he did that every single day and then he'd write write 80 pages and then he'd go and be sick just from the from the physical and mental exertion and the strain and then in the afternoon and that was in the that was in the morning and then he'd kind of recover and you know do a bit of light reading and pottering about and then the next day he'd do it the same again over and over and over for um about seven years. And in that period, he, as as you mentioned, we don't know exactly how many because he forgot and he had multiple pseudonyms. The main one being Georges Sim, S-A-M, which was how he was known when he began writing the Simonon novels. People thought that Simonon was a pseudonym because Georges Sim was so well known. But he seems to have written something like 150 or more books in this sort of seven-year burst. It's It sort of makes you feel peculiar even to think about what that must have been like. Yeah, and that was in, in Belgium in the 1920s and well, mainly Belgium. Then he moved to Paris, ba- I think basically as soon as he could afford to. I've forgotten the exact exact date. And cut quite a figure in, in Paris. You know, Georges Sim was was famous. And then in... Let me remind myself of the date. It's 1930, the first Megrie. That's right. The first ones came out. I think, he, I think he sort of set out on the project when he was about 25 and 28... He, he decided he'd learnt enough because it seemed that the, the kind of hack writing also seemed to have a conscious element of learning how to do it, learning his craft. And he set out to write what he called um, semi-literary novels. In other words, books that were sort of in, 
pitch at the intelligent general reader, but had quite a strong genre element. And he made great pops for up first in a short story. I think from 28, that might be wrong. And he sort of realised that Maigret was the the way to do it, the way to, you know, the character who would let him write these books that he'd always been wanting to write. And interestingly, for someone who was quite reclusive in later life, you know, he launched it, it was a big party. They published, I can't remember how many, but they published a whole bunch of them in one go and had a huge fancy party to launch it. And as I say, though, you know, part of it was getting across the point that Georges Simenon was actually a person, not the pseudonym. And he, you know, he was living quite a sort of big life at that point. He had an affair with Josephine Baker, slightly unlikely, who was, you know, arguably the most famous woman in Paris at that point. Famous exotic dancer, you know, who would appear in this costume completely naked apart from a dress made of bananas. And he said of her that she has the most famous bottom in the world. And it's the most famous because it is the only bottom that laughs. I think we may never know what that means. And so, you know, he was really quite a sort of expansive, colourful, lively figure in Paris in the late 20s and then launched the Maigret novels, I think uh, I think four or five of them in one go, brought out from Fayard, I think it was, with his huge party. In Paris. And then, you know, kept up. I think he always wrote as quickly, but he didn't write quite as long hours, if you see what I mean. And it wasn't every day by that point, was it? When Because it, the way you describe it, that he would, this very brilliant analogy of yours is if he went into a a room and went into this different place where Maigret was and that's where he wrote these the novels very intensively over the period of a week so he wasn't the writing every single day as he had been in his apprentice period but he'd... yeah he'd write them in these extraordinary bursts I was trying to imagine how it must have been for Simonon and the sort of room thing is I suspect what it must must have been like that sort of Maigret was in a place in his head and he would feel he would sort of feel a Maigret coming on almost like an illness and would literally go to his doctor for a checkup to see if he was physically well enough to write a book. And he would sort of take notes. He would often know the characters' backstories in tremendous detail. And then the actual process of writing was like a sort of siege. He would just disappear into the room, be brought his meals. I think he'd basically come out to go to the loo and to sleep, and that was it. And they were all written within about 12 days, a fortnight, seven to ten days of writing and then two three days revision and you know bingo there it was a book of they're usually between sort of 30 35,000 words and you know in the first year of them the first year they came out which is 1931 I think he published 10 and then seven more in the next year and I think he'd written some of them in 29 he had a sort of run-up but it's still I think for books that you know, the, as the most disparaging thing you could say about them is that they aren't terrible. And if you really like them as I do, you say they're really good. You know, I, I think it's a pretty unmatched rate of productivity, 17 of them in two years. And so consistent, as you say, as well. I, and I, they are very consistent. And I do think that on some some level that is linked to the way he wrote them, that they, that's where the idea of this sort of room image came to me, that it's as if he was sort of re-encountering Maigret. And so they are... You know, there aren't ones that are outright howlers that you just can't get through. I mean, I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan, but there are quite a few, you know, absolutely rank Christie novels, uh, quite often ones where she's sort of preoccupied by international plots and conspiracies, that, you know, even as a proper fan, it's a real struggle. And Simonon's not like that, no, not in the Maigret books anyway. You're comparing his, his writing to a fever seems a, 
seems to be a much better analogy than perhaps a more obvious and quite commonly made one, which is that it was about the the urge to write and his and his sex drive being similar. But he showed a lot more control in his writing than he did in his sex life, didn't he? Yeah, he, I mean, there was a sort of madness to his sex drive. He, he, we should say we don't know how much of it's true. There was this famous thing where he claimed to have slept with slept with is a euphemism there ten thousand women and. His um, strange second wife, Denise, said it was complete rubbish. It was, you know, 1,500 at most. <laughs> only, only 1,200. Only 1,200, yeah. So even on her numbers, it was pretty compulsive. But yeah, I mean, he claimed that he needed sex two or three times a day. And there was obviously in him a kind of need, a hunger, an unfillable lack connected with sex or affection or it's as you say it's sometimes described as appetite but i'm not sure it is i think there's something more hysterical about it it's sort of not like hunger i don't know it's like um an unscratchable itch that you know was was completely how his um sexuality worked i mean one of the odd things about josephine baker is that seems to be one of the only times he actually had an affair and he fled he actually went away he went traveling to get away from her because he's had this compulsive sex drive, but he didn't actually like having affairs. His preferred thing was, you know, having quickie sex with a chambermaid or going to brothels. So it's one of the many respects in which, you know, he was a properly odd person, Simonon. He, he really was um, sort of driven, compulsive. As I say, it's kind of... Uh, the, the the late Michael Neve is a great friend of the LRB many years. Uh, he... He used, I don't think he ever wrote about it, but I remember he used to talk very funnily about about studies in male hysteria, about sort of male hysteria being a neglected topic. And I think Simon was one of the great male hysterics. And of course, when he was in his one of his writing periods in that week, ten days that he was writing, he wasn't having sex two or three times a day. That he was he was writing instead, and that he he'd gone into sort of the Megre the Megre world where and Megre is very different, doesn't he? He's a heavy drinker and he likes eating. But yeah, Megre is immensely uxorious. That's one of the things through all the books that Madame Megre is a very important character, and she very much grounds the books in a kind of domestic daily reality. She's always doing this, cooking these um, very Franco-French kind of classic bourgeois cooking meals. And they're always particularised and characterised. It's never, you know, Maigret had supper. It's always, you know, Vichyssoise followed by, you know, Sol à la Meunière, followed by a kind of cherry sorbet. He, and the drinks are always, I mean, that's one of the things I like about them is incredibly particular. You know, his, his drinking's really funny because he, he often does that engaging thing of, you know, starting at breakfast. He's having a cognac or a calvados or something and just keeps going all day, which Simonon again wasn't like. But there is in the books, there's clearly a, a whole set of you know, drives and appetites being sublimated because the sex is often getting the characters in trouble, but there's no sex in Maigret's life. And, and instead, what there is is you know, good, solid bourgeois cooking. Yeah, and isn't it in, at the beginning of Maigret and the Grand Banks, as the new translation is called, that he gets a letter from a friend in, in Brittany saying, can you come and help this sailor who's been accused of murder? And he says to Madame Maigret, is it all right if we don't go to Alsace for our summer holidays this year, but go to Brittany instead? And she's a bit disappointed because she likes going home to Alsace and making jam and, and everything. But she she grudgingly agrees and takes her crocheting with her to, to pass the time in Brittany. And the other thing about Alsace is the slow gin. His, his, her sister makes slow gin and Maigret often 
you know, he's a big fan of it. And there's a, the thing in one of the strange books, Mayor Gray's Memoirs, which is the book that pretends to be by Mayor Gray talking about his own life in which he talks about meeting Simonon, talks about, tells the story of his marriage, things like that. And he actually specifically mentions the slow gin there that in one of the novels, Simonon had changed it to someone else and you know, he welcomes the opportunity to put the record straight, you know. I mean, it's really interesting how, how sort of um, charged that domestic and culinary side of the books are. And I think it's because of that thing of it's a physical reality, it's a psychological reality, it's a sort of ordinariness that grounds the books and makes them, I was going to say real, but that's wrong because the psychology and the crimes are often very real too, but it gives a sort of a kind of base note of sort of ordinariness that the, that is very important to the books. And that presumably most of their readers would identify with more than with the, you know, the canals and the tent arrondissement and all the rest of it. That the, to the, the bourgeois reader of the, it's a way of connecting, connecting us, as it were, to the... Yeah, maybe. You know, the world that we leave when we go to the, the crime scene. I think that's probably right. I mean, and it, it's often a thing you get in fiction that has a sort of a journey towards kind of otherness. In the in the Megre novels, it's the criminal world. But it, it's often a thing in, you know, say in someone like Tolkien, there's this balance between the scary, adventurous, fighty bits and the bits that are comfort and concerning. Jenny Turner wrote that in a, in a very good piece about Tolkien in the in the LRB uh, many years ago, that he was very good at kind of comfort and cosiness, balancing it with these sort of extreme fantasy elements. And maybe there's a thing in Megri, as you say, that there's a sort of rhythm between the identifiable familiar and the slightly more strange. And Simonon was equally interested in both. You know, he he had a genuine fascination with the things that drove people to commit crime. He found criminals completely relatable. He identified with them. And uh, that that's the other kind of reality in his books. You know, the, the, the crooks and the baddies and the perpetrators, they're not othered. You know, they're not mysterious and alien and incomprehensible. They're very, very, very similar to, to Maigret and by extension to Simonon and by extension to the reader. And you mentioned Agatha Christie earlier, and it's, there's an interesting difference between them that one of the things you quote Maigret's son saying that his, his father didn't, didn't believe in evil. And one of the things that you said in your piece about Agatha Christie a couple of years ago was that she did believe in evil, but but also, um, but she isn't interested in why people do the bad things they do, but she is unflinchingly willing to look directly at the truth that they do them. But that's interesting that Christie believed in evil and wasn't so interested in motive, and Simonon doesn't believe in evil, but is interested in motive. Yeah, absolutely. I do think of them as as interesting kind of counterparts to each other in that sense yeah christie had an almost religious feeling about evil i think that it just is it's a fact it's a thing in the world you know she would go into the why in terms of plot mechanics she's quite good at that but she wasn't that bothered about the psychological forces that drove people to do terrible things she just sort of took it for granted that they did whereas yeah his whole thing was about that she's much closer to the dominant strand of you know most detective and thriller fiction basically assumes the existence of a force more or less like evil, you know, incomprehensible badness. And Simonon is in a... He's not the only writer who, who does does that. Um, the wonderful Swedish uh, double-act Sjöwal and Wallou, who in a f- strange way are the kind of er-figures behind the kind of, kind of current Scandinavian 
I would say moment, but it's more than a decade long, but the kind of upsurge in interest in Scandi crime writing. And they're very unlike all the things they gave birth to because their thing is sort of pragmatic and realistic and has a sort of sociological underpinning and they don't believe in evil. And they wrote 10 novels about this um, detective, Martin Beck. And they are close to Simonon. But yeah, I, so, I, so I met John Simonon at a thing in 2013 and we were talking about, I think... They were one of the many Wolanda series was on at that point, and maybe even... Um, what on the TV, you mean? There's a Kenneth Branagh one, and there's also a Swedish one. Yeah, on the telly, or maybe the Kenneth Branagh, and there were Swedish ones as well. And what's the name with the jumper? Remind me of that. Was that The Bridge? Yeah. Oh, the Bridge. Uh, I think yeah, that bridge, was just yeah. on at that point, too. No, it's not. It's The Killing. Sorry, The, the Bridge killing, is the other one. The right. Killing is... Yeah, yeah. That's right. The, the, killing, the, the Bridge is the autistic Swede, and the kind of um warm-hearted dane that's right exactly. <laughs> yeah the killing and um so we're talking about them and he said and i was just compl- very struck by the way this complete certainty with he said but they are the opposite of my father's work it really landed with me i thought it was such an interesting observation as i said and he then went on to say because he didn't believe in evil and I, I have been thinking about that that since it's, and it is quite a striking thing about what people want from these kinds of stories it's an interesting corollary. You know, they do like that thing we've just been talking about, about the kind of rootedness in the real, relatable and daily life. But they also do like this sort of jolt of, you know, incomprehensible badness. And they didn't get it from Simonon. You're listening to the LRB podcast. The LRB has a new newsletter called Diverted Traffic, which features a different piece from the paper's archive each day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed. And the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic. That's lrb.me forward slash traffic. And if you subscribe to the LRB, you can get the first 12 issues for just £12. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. I mean, the other thing that you say about Christie and Marjorie Allingham and Dorothy Sayers and those are the golden age writers of English detective fiction, whose books, as you say, bring comfort, as if they, but they have, they have no smell. And you say they have as much relation to real crime as Alice in Wonderland does. But whereas Simonon is unconsoling. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can read them for comfort in the way that you can read any series for comfort and anything that's set. Um, I mean, one of the, it's not exactly an irony, but one of the things that's happened is that these sort of very particular realistic books set in a in a carefully described, precise, real-world media are now like a fantasy parallel world. You know, Paris in the 30s, long, long gone. You know, the Grand Bank Cafe that you mentioned an unrecognisable other world. So there is that, there's a kind of cosiness to that, I think, that you know, they wouldn't necessarily have had when they were written. But yeah, he, Policeman really liked his books and he was very proud of it. Oddly enough, the, um, I don't know if he was the commissariat of police, but a senior Paris detective actually had him in when the first couple of them came out. He was invited in to look around the bureau and to just see what, and he got the descriptions of the corridor and things where Maigret works and where, suspects are waiting outside before being interrogated that's a that particular space is very important in the books as characters spend a lot of time there waiting before going in to be interrogated and that was taken from real life and it, as i say it was because this, this um senior cop senior french cop 
basically said, well, look, if you're going to describe this in your books, you might as well get it right. And uh, he was very, you know, he was proud of the fact that that he did. He took trouble on that. And when he, he refers to, it happened sort of in passing and with quite a light touch, but he refers to forensic textbooks and to forensic principles that the police did use. So I think a lot of the investigations are largely fantastic, you know, when he's, he sort of, you know, waits outside doors for hours and hours and catches a glimpse of the suspect and works out what happened. That's obviously a kind of wish fulfillment element to that. But but at the same time, there was a generous sprinkling of real police procedure in it. And the kind of, you know, the English detectives, I mean, I love all those books, by the way, and I do read them from comfort. I multiply reread them. And there's something wonderful about the whole idea of the amateur sleuth. You know, I'm a complete sucker for all that. But, you know, Megri isn't an amateur sleuth. He's a working policeman. And I, suppose, I mean, another point of comparison in Sherlock Holmes, who and another thing that Holmes and Megri have in common is that they were finished with, or their writers, the writers thought they'd finished with them, that Arthur Conan had always went so far as to kill off Holmes and then had to bring him back. And Simonon brought Megri out of retirement. And the other person your piece made me think of is, is Tintin and that Hergé partly being... They're the same sort of age and being Belgian and the accusations of collaboration during the war. Um, but also when you talked about the sort of semen on boy reporter, it's, it's about quite Tintin-like, Tintin-like. And, and you know, Nailshire came to hate Tintin and used to draw sketches of him being hanged and things like this. So, but did semen come to hate Maigret or was he always... No, I don't think he did. It's funny you should mention Tintin because I do think there's an analogy. And they, as you said, they did both get in trouble for the war for similar reasons for... Um, you know, collaborating, which I think is mainly based on who they wrote for and not having resisted and, or more cynically, not having, you know, sent the correct signals about resistance. And um, Patrick Marnham, um, who wrote, who's one of Simonon's biographers, I think quite convincing on that, that Simonon looked at, he was a friend by correspondence of André Gide. And Gide largely sat out the war and was wasn't exactly quite quietistic but didn't say much and Simonon thought that that was an okay role model but actually one of the things that happened to Gide was he was massively attacked by I can't remember why I think one of his books was attacked by collaborationist um, pro-Nazi press and that really helped him actually at the end of the war he was able to produce this as a credential uh, but Simonon kept on working kept on publishing and that was catastrophic for his reputation so but basically left um, left France because of it lived in America for almost a decade, just to get away from the trail of that, which Hergé didn't do. You know, Hergé was stuck in Belgium with this sort of label hung around his neck. And oddly enough, it had a bigger effect on Hergé's books. You know, the post-war Tintin is much more socially conscious and political in a kind of um, progressive and thoughtful way, because the politics in Hergé's earlier books, which are kind of terrible, but they're largely unthink. And there's an astonishingly pure, clear racism and things like Tintin in the Congo. And the the journey that Hergé made, I mean, Hergé's a whole lot of the subject, but there's the most extraordinary arc, both of, of growth, both in his art and his writing, and also in his politics. You know, he travelled one of the biggest journeys of any 20th century writer and artist, I think. Um, and Simon didn't really do that. You know, he sort of, as I say, sat the war out, fled to America when he left this bad rep behind him. And then when he start, restarted writing Maigret's, um, which actually still during the war, I think there's no evidence at all to suggest that he hated him. And I think, I think in a way, I mean, I don't think he ever said this, 
But if you sort of missed him, it's almost as if he missed his companionship. And the books that he was writing, the remondeurs, as they're called, the hard novels, are so hard and so comfortless. And they have this sort of cold, bleak, abandoned, unconsoling, desolate worldview that is there implicitly in the Maigrets, but is softened by Maigret, softened by his impulse to understand and his empathy, and also maybe by some of the domestic stuff I was talking about. And take that away, and you know they really are staring into the abyss. Those Romandeur. It's almost as if, as I say, Simonon, you know, missed his companion. And the other thing I should also say is that he did live life on a fairly big scale. He always lived in colossal houses and had lots of domestic staff and so on. And you know he liked to spend freely. And I think he needed the money because the Romandeur are great. But you know he's not the first writer to discover that the kind of you know, the most popular and profitable character, you know, from the publishing point of view, that's the one to go with, the one everybody absolutely loves and wants to buy in massive numbers. So here, so it was partly the his readers or the market that brought him back to Megre? I think, I think, uh, um, score draw, only. I'd say, yeah, yeah. Um, wanting to make Dosh. And I mean, it's a hypothesis about missing him, but the books are warm, you know, when he comes back to Megre, if you read a couple of the Romandeur written from that period and then switch back to Maigret, they are, you know, as I say, the worldview is still cold, but there's a sort of emotional warmth and connection in them that is to do with Maigret, I think. And then he he stopped writing really quite suddenly, didn't he, in the early 70s and about a year after his mother died, which you don't mention and maybe it's too easy to make too much of that, that somehow his mother died and then he no longer felt the need to write. Yeah, I mean, he was very, very preoccupied with his relationship with his mother and his mother's sort of coldness and ungivingness it was one of those sort of classic things where the main thing she could do to have control over him was to withhold approval and praise and all that and so she did and he you know, deeply and passionately minded and could never and never got over it and you know talks about it at great length in his autobiographical writing i mean the kind of the wound he describes it is all about his mother so, yeah, it does look as if there's a connection. Um, but it was quite, you know, he did, you know, <laughs> it's just an odd thing to say for someone who wrote, his his last phase of his life, he dictated 22 books about himself. Um, and he'd written a few autobiographies before that. So he'd written something like 25 autobiographical books. But it's a strange thing to say that actually, in a funny way, he didn't particularly live the examined life, Simonon. You know, he was such a slave to his drives and his impulses. And, um, you know, it's when he moved from one place to another, you know, he sort of moved from Belgium to Paris, moved to the countryside during the war, and then um, went to America, went back to France, went to Switzerland, stopped writing novels. You know, it's sort of, he would just know he was done with something. You know, he just sort of came to the end of it. And um, he fitted, the last book was Megri and Monsieur Charles, and then he just stopped, that's it, stopped writing fiction. Did he start writing the memoirs before? Because his, his only daughter, he had several children, and he had several sons and one daughter, and she committed suicide in 1978, didn't she? And did he start writing his memoirs after that? No, he'd already, he'd begun, he'd begun in, um, you know, because the writing was so compulsive that he stopped writing fiction and switched to these memoirs. And I'm not going to pretend to have read them because I haven't, they're mostly untranslated. Yeah, the great tragedy of his life in those years was... Um, his daughter's suicide. I borrowed a thing Jeremy Harding said to me in the piece. He talked about 
the autobiographical writings being sinister. So I thought about a lot, and there is something odd about them. They're so flat and so level. And it's the sort of other side, perhaps, of his empathy and his sympathy for people who do these terrible things. If you, there's something slightly sinister about being able to empathise with all motives, if you think about that. I mean, actually, ought we be able to empathise with every single person who does every single terrible thing? There's a absolute, total absence of judgment that you know, it's almost something dark about it. Yeah, yeah some, t- some people it's okay to judge. Yeah, that he, he doesn't feel any otherness about anything anyone does, however horrific. And that doesn't hit you in the fiction, but in a funny way, when he turns the spotlight on himself, it, there, I don't know, there's a, there's a, I suppose it's that thing Graham Greene said that all writers need a chip of ice in the heart. And um, Simon definitely had that. The memoirs that were translated into English, the LRV sent to Patricia Highsmith to review. So that you know, he's... I, I haven't, I didn't know that. Um, and what did she say? Well, not not as much as you might hope. Actually, it's a it's a slightly disappointing piece. It's a fairly well. She's very good at not saying much. Yeah. Actually, that's <laughs> one of her great strengths. Yeah, it's a very. I mean, everyone should go and read it. Obviously, but it's it's a fairly sort of straight review of the of the memoirs and of and of the some of which they were published with some things that his daughter had written as well. So it's obviously it's quite. Oh uh, right, I don't know that, but it was not when I was old. Well, I'm not sure how it was. It came about. It was. It's called Intimate Memoirs, including Marie Jo's book. Oh no. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I do know that one. Yeah. Yeah. No. When I was old is a thing he wrote about. It's a rather wonderful title about a sort of particular year in his life when he suddenly started feeling much older, and he wrote it after he came out of it. Yeah. He, fe- he sort of felt younger at sixty than he and he had at fifty-eight, which I thought was quite interesting. And it's like that Bob Dylan line about you know i was so much i was so much older than i'm younger than that now yeah the other thing i'd be going to ask about earlier is his sense of himself as an outsider with this which in, I mean, sort of in a literal sense as a, he went to paris as a belgian and so that, i mean in the, he was in a literal way an outsider for much of his life and i think the, the you know whatever the wound was that he had um from his mum i think contributed to that you know, he you know they weren't affluent i forgot the father died when he was young and i've forgotten what he did but and the war years were extremely hard he was involved in the black market and involved in this sort of semi-criminal hinterland underworld as a teenager he was he was 11 when the war started and so you saw terrible desperate things and really that stayed with him and i think the dual thing of that sort of you know sense of outsideness from his belgianness from his sense of not being properly loved by his mother which is the thing he does go on about and from you know not coming from security and prosperity and the fact that everything could slip away i think those those things are all very important to him and his the first um, bunch of megres for a lot of them he was he was um, an outsider in a very kind of basic sense he was traveling around on a barge he had a, a series of canal boats and he you know they would change berth every night and he'd write in the morning had I mean he had servants travelling with him and who would sleep in a tent, they'd pitch a tent next to the barge. Um they'd have lunch and then they'd move on to the next mooring. And so there was a you know, he really did like that sense of not rootedness and a thing I've already mentioned Patrick Marnham, his biographer, talks about 
very astutely, I think that, that often the, the view through a window, the you know, the world you sit and watch pass by when you're in a cafe, um, the kind of people around you in a restaurant, um, public spaces like squares, that's very much the world he describes. It is the view of a traveller and someone who doesn't live in a place. He doesn't really describe intimate domestic scenes. As Marlon says, he doesn't describe, you know, first communions and family celebrations and, and weddings and, and things like that. You know, it really is a sort of, it's like that Henry James, the thing Henry James said that, that a good writer could walk walk past I think the, the brigade of guards barracks and look through the window and get enough material to write a novel about it. And that's Simonon's view. It's that view through the window that he then goes off and writes a novel about. Or the, or the view from a train as well that he's very good about on train journeys. And one of the things I noticed in your descriptions of the, the beginnings, you talk about how good he is on the weather and so many of them are seem to be at the train journeys and uh, yes no he loves absolutely loves that that sort of what larkin called the poetry of departures you know he loved that thing of departures and arrivals and and the kind of structured chaos of things like train stations it's that's a very sort of semenonish landscape funny enough the writer who's a bit like that who i've written about elsewhere is lee child and his view traveling around america travels around everywhere mainly on greyhound buses and he's in diners and cafes and things like that and there's a weird similarity child has with Simonon in terms of that, you know, the travelling man's perspective. And going back to the, the question of the, the empathy and the ability to empathise with the people who do the most terrible things, but there are so, in some of the books, I mean, there are other people who he seems to spend less time thinking about. I mean, for example, in, in the Grand Banks, and there's, there's Adele, the prostitute, who's been locked in the captain's cabin on this, this fishing voyage. And two other members of the crew have been going and having sex with her and uh, her point of view as it were doesn't as far as i if i remember rightly doesn't you don't really get any of her point of view in that book but there is a sort of a horrifying tale of this sort of bluebeard's prisoner as it were trapped in this cabin no you quite often don't get the um people's point of view but you get to empathize with their circumstances i mean i thought i mean she doesn't you don't hear much from her but it's incredibly vivid i think the account of the horror of it. Uh, I remember, you know, I don't know, that the sort of thing of this three-month voyage trapped in a cabin. Um, I, I thought that was very, very vivid. I suppose it's the predicament that's vivid rather than the kind of account of her character. But I suppose a character being real, it, for me, it's the sort of same thing as empathy. If you kind of apprehend their human reality through a depiction, that. That's sort of what empathy is. In and I suppose my response, he doesn't need to lard it on. If you can get that response in the reader that economically, then that's enough. Yes, I mean, to... and they're, they're off, I mean, his um, accounts of those characters uh, are often quite economical. They're kind of people caught up in the circumstances. It's often, as it were, the, it's the circumstances that make you empathise. As the bit that you, the bit in, um, in the... Megre's remembering his his mother's death. Yeah, I think it's sort of at the heart of it, this thing where his father does a, tries to help out a sort of ruined old drunk of a doctor um, who'd been disgraced, and his father, who's an estate manager in the Loire, you know, gets him to deliver his second child when his wife's pregnant as an act of, an, I don't know, is it sort of atonement or forgiveness or acceptance or something, and... You know, it's implied that the doctor messes it up and you know, his wife and the new baby die. And that's one of the things that makes Megre very preoccupied with always wanting to 
empathize and understand this mysterious action of his, that his father had done, this impulse of his father's to empathize. And Megre sort of, his career as a policeman basically begins there. It's very effectively described, um, all the more so for there being no, there's no elaboration. He basically just tells you what happened and lets you work it out. Yeah, the, yeah to understand and empathize and not to judge, which... Seaman, I mean, he's, I mean, he explicitly said that was his motto, didn't he? At some point, he said that was his motto as well as Megre's. Yeah, and um, you know, Megre is the is the is the vehicle for that. And I think it's one of the things that people, you know, keep coming back to the books for. That's rather distinctive about them, as you say. It's the, it's not like you know, as it were, Christie bad, Seaman on good. But it, as you pointed out, it is fascinating that this so, it's so the opposite of a lot of the way things work. Because actually, the plot and the denouement are quite perfunctory. It might part of it be because of that, you know, the writing method we were talking about earlier, that he just was burnt out and knackered. And the last couple of cha- chapters are a bit sketchy and perfunctory quite often when he wraps everything up. But I think it was mainly that he just sort of didn't really care. Once he'd figured out his own satisfaction, why the character had done what they'd done and sort of led the reader through that, the bit where, you know, the mechanics of the crime get sorted out and explained, he just wasn't particularly interested. John Lannister, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tom. You can read John Lannister's piece on Megre in the current issue of the LRB, along with The American Virus by Elliot Weinberger, Susan Pedersen on Sheila Delaney, and Nicholas Spice's account of being hospitalised with COVID-19. And you can read John's piece on Agatha Christie and Patricia Highsmith's review of Simonon's memoirs in the LRB archive, and there are links to those on the episode page for this podcast. To subscribe to the LRB and get your first 12 issues for just £12, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. The LRB also now has a daily newsletter, Diverted Traffic, featuring a different piece from the paper's archive every day. A complete absence of references to plague, pandemics or quarantine is guaranteed, and the piece will be brought in front of the paywall for 24 hours, so you can share it with anyone you want to. To sign up to that, go to lrb.me forward slash traffic.